Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. Tom Myers and I have a really great show for you, actually, that we were preparing that we think that you'll love. It's a story involving immigrants and transportation in the late 19th century. I know a lot of you are excited to have Tom back on the show, and he will be, but this week is not the time for that show, so we will hopefully get that to you by next week. Today, I wanted to explore a subject that I wrote about on our website a few years ago about a march which occurred in New York City on July 28th, 1917. A march that is known as the Silent Parade. Now this week in New York City and throughout the country and the world, tens of millions of people have gathered to protest systematic racism and police brutality in the murder of the Minneapolis man named George Floyd. Now we've seen these protests before. In 2014, protesters here in the city took to the streets for days, marching after the death of Eric Garner. In 2006, marching after the murder of Sean Bell. In 1999, after the murder of Amadou Diallo. Throughout modern history, and back and back and back, Rodney King, the murder of Martin Luther King, the civil rights protests, people take to the streets to have their voices heard, to express outrage, sorrow, demanding acknowledgement, and demanding change. And all of these marches and protests, all of them link back to the year 1917 and to the silent parade, which is sometimes considered to be the first civil rights march in America, or at least the first large-scale protest parade, almost entirely comprised of black men and women. This is one of the most extraordinary moments of solidarity ever displayed in New York City. From the New York Times the following day, to the beat of muffled drums, 8,000 Negro men, women, and children marched down Fifth Avenue yesterday in a parade of silent protest against acts of discrimination and oppression inflicted upon them in this country and in other parts of the world. Without a shout or a cheer, they made their cause known through the many banners which they carried, calling attention to Jim Crowism, segregation, disenfranchisement, and the riots of Waco, Memphis, and East St. Louis. The parade was in all respects one of the most quiet and orderly demonstrations ever witnessed on Fifth Avenue. True to their word, the marchers made it a parade of silent protest. It was not until they reached 23rd Street where they dispersed that they permitted themselves a few outbursts of cheers these being occasioned by the waving of some of their more elaborately inscribed banners calling for just and equal rights for the Negro. America had just entered the war three years earlier, 
and New York had certainly seen its share of protest parades since the start of the Great War. There had also been huge suffrage marches, thousands of women advocating for the right to vote. But none of these marches had featured so prominently the city's African-American population, gathered here on this day, July 28th, in such great numbers along New York's wealthiest street. This extraordinary procession was organized by the burgeoning National Association of the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP, a group of concerned black and white activists and intellectuals which had formed less than a decade earlier in New York. This organization had come about because of mass racial violence against African Americans, which had occurred in August of 1908 in the city of Springfield, Illinois, famous as the hometown of Abraham Lincoln. When furious whites were not allowed to lynch two black men being held in jail on charges of murder and attempted rape, a mob of over 3,000 people took out their anger on Springfield's black neighborhoods, destroying dozens of black-owned homes and businesses and killing nine black residents. The NAACP was formed by black leaders such as W.E.B. Du Bois and Mary Church Terrell, and white progressive era reformers such as Mary White Ovington and Lillian Wald. In fact, the reception for the NAACP's first conference would be held at Wald's Henry Street Settlement on the Lower East Side. Any hope for equality and untrammeled freedom for African Americans after the Civil War vanished during the Jim Crow era, racism and discrimination blossoming in a separate but equal world, in the South and in the North. On March 4, 1913, Woodrow Wilson was sworn in as President of the United States. He would reverse the integration of several federal offices, firing black office holders and replacing those employees with white ones. And he also loved movies. In fact, the very first movie ever screened at the White House was for Wilson. And the movie was The Birth of a Nation, based on the novel The Klansman, written by Thomas Dixon Jr., a good friend of Woodrow Wilson. The film was a glowing depiction of the Ku Klux Klan, and it was a huge hit in America. And virtually overnight, this racist organization, once considered moribund, began popping up throughout the United States. Meanwhile, Southern black residents began leaving Southern states, tormented by Jim Crow and an entrenched way of life that kept them perpetually under the fist of white supremacy. Yet they were not entirely welcomed in the North, where African Americans competed for jobs with whites, a situation which worsened at the start of World War I, when many well-paying industrial jobs opened up. White mob violence soon terrorized blacks in cities across the country. Newspapers were filled with incidents of lynching and the mass destruction of black communities. On May 15, 1916, in Waco, Texas, a man named Jesse Washington was brutally killed as 10,000 white spectators watched. On May 22, 1917, in Memphis, Tennessee, a man named L. Persons was savagely dismembered by an angry white mob. Newspapers proclaimed 
Thousands cheered when Negro burned. Throughout the decade of the 1910s, hundreds of African Americans lost their lives at the hands of racist mobs. During the 19th century, journalists like Ida B. Wells exposed the horrors of lynching and race violence in widely read reports. But with the birth of a nation and the resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan, black Americans in northern cities, such as East St. Louis, Illinois, were under constant threat. East St. Louis, across the Mississippi River from Missouri's bigger and better known St. Louis, was a growing industrial town at the time of World War I. In 1916, white workers went on strike at a suburban meatpacking plant. In response, the company recruited hundreds of black workers from the South. As the black population of East St. Louis grew, so too did a deep racial resentment among white workers. On May 28, 1917, at a union meeting, one worker declared, East St. Louis must remain a white man's town. Over 3,000 white men swarmed the streets, attacking black residents indiscriminately. Then, on July 1st, white mobs stormed into the black neighborhood of East St. Louis. When they were fired upon, the mob destroyed the neighborhood, burning it down, cutting off water hoses, and watched as families fled the burning buildings to be picked off by gunmen. The carnage was total. As dozens of bodies lay in the streets, those black residents who survived were escorted out of the city by militiamen. From the St. Louis Post-Dispatch on July 3rd, quote, The refugees were of every age and size. There were infants in arms and children pushed in buggies or pulled in express wagons. Some fugitives talked of finding relatives or friends in St. Louis, and some were without any other thought than to get away from the town where they felt their lives might be no safer tonight than they were last night. This massacre was but one of several violent incidents aimed at new black laborers, pointed attacks meant to strike fear in the hearts of black Americans. Some cities began preparing for an outright war here in the summer of 1917. In Chicago, the city's former state's attorney was urging its black residents to arm themselves. Quote, don't buy an arsenal, he declared. But get enough guns to protect yourself. You may be victims within a fortnight. Meanwhile, the circumstances of World War I were only exacerbating an already volatile crisis. As W.E.B. Du Bois would explain, quote, The Negro, attached by higher wages in the North and repelled by the menace of lynching and caste in the South, moves in to fill the new labor demand caused by the war. The common laborer in the North is caught between the tyranny of exclusive trade unions and the underbidding of blacks. The rest is murder and riot and unrest. White Northern laborers find killing Negroes a safe, lucrative employment, which commends them to the American Federation of Labor." Unquote. As the founder and editor of the NAACP's influential magazine, The Crisis, 
Du Bois would be one of the leading voices in formulating a response to this rise of racist violence in America. Du Bois went to East St. Louis to interview survivors and published a vivid account of the rioting in a September 1917 issue of The Crisis. He presents some chilling accounts by eyewitnesses. His first-hand accounts most certainly influenced other members of the NAACP, including a field organizer in Harlem, a man named James Weldon Johnson. Now, Johnson was a true Renaissance man. Born in Jacksonville, Florida in 1871, he became the first African-American accepted to the Florida Bar Association. But by age 30, he moved to New York with his brother J. Rosamond Johnson to become successful Tin Pan Alley songwriters. He then worked on the Theodore Roosevelt presidential campaign in 1904, and President Roosevelt later thanked him with diplomatic jobs in Venezuela and Nicaragua. By 1914, now back in the United States, Johnson became immediately involved with the work of the NAACP. His writing talents used in the pages of this magazine, The Crisis. In May of 1917, Johnson wrote of the lynching of L. Persons, reporting every savage, inhuman detail. And while in Memphis, he even set up a chapter of the NAACP. Like Du Bois, he experienced the gruesome details of racist outrage up close. And so in July of 1917, so just days after the East St. Louis violence, at a meeting of the NAACP at St. Philip's Church in Harlem, Johnson discussed with a group of prominent local leaders an unusual but effective form of protest, an army of marchers along Fifth Avenue drawing attention to the victims of the East St. Louis riot. Now, while the idea of a political protest march seems very common today, it was very rarely seen back then. But Johnson had seen what a successful protest might look like. His idea was inspired by another major activist event in New York history, and by the actions, believe it or not, of one very prominent white family. The Villards are a surprising entry in the history of New York City activism. Henry Villard was a German-American railroad tycoon with a background in newspaper journalism. By the 1880s, Villard had settled in Manhattan and became the owner of the New York Evening Post, that is, the paper that indeed traces itself to our current New York Post, you can still find Villard's lavish home in midtown Manhattan today. The Villard houses are on Madison Avenue at 50th Street. Henry Villard's wife, Fanny Garrison Villard, would use her privilege to be a powerful voice for the causes of suffrage and pacifism. She, too, would be a founding member of the NAACP. Fanny was the daughter of abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison, and when her husband, Henry Villard, died in the year 1900, Fanny threw her attentions into activist causes that would have made her father proud. 
As war was beginning to rage in Europe in 1914, many in America and around the world instead sought peace. Fanny Villard would be the face of the New York peace movement, joining with other society women to form an organization known as the Women's Peace Party. Almost a month to the day after the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, the spark which ignited World War I, the women of New York were on the streets in a striking display of anti-war activism, the Women's Peace Parade, on August 29th, 1914. This parade began in the afternoon, marching down Fifth Avenue from 58th Street to Union Square. Women who either lived or shopped along this ritzy avenue were now marching along it in formal procession, accompanied by the ominous beat of muffled drums. The concept was inspired by a funeral procession, women dressed in black in the garb of mourning. There was occasional applause, but otherwise, according to reports, quote, the general silence of the great gathering was considered the best evidence of understanding. It was a powerful statement, if problematic in its own way. Over 250 black women also marched in this parade, as did women of Chinese and South Asian descent, but they were all placed together near the back of the parade. Now, as I mentioned, Fanny Villard was one of the white founding members of the NAACP, and so too was her son, Oswald Garrison Villard, at this time the editor of the New York Evening Post. In 1916, at a meeting of the Harlem chapter of the NAACP, while discussing the disturbing resurgence of white supremacy, Villard suggested that perhaps they could organize a similar march to promote peace at home. So the following year then, 1917, James Weldon Johnson, now here at another NAACP meeting, built upon this idea of a peace parade. Johnson told the meeting, let us march the streets of New York to call awareness to those who died in those atrocities in East St. Louis and in Waco and in Memphis, and let us wake up New Yorkers to the plight of black Americans. But in an unprecedented decision by the organizers, this march would consist only of black marchers. Marches and parades were common sights in New York, but by 1917, their purposes were either for civic or military celebrations or for communal grieving. Down in the financial district, New Yorkers had already begun throwing ticker tape during celebratory parades for such men as Theodore Roosevelt and Admiral George Dewey. The city had also seen its share of grand funereal processions, such as those for Abraham Lincoln and Ulysses S. Grant. A dramatic march down the city's most prosperous street, comprised of those very people most likely to be victimized in such riots, would jar the delicate sensibilities of insulated New Yorkers. A somber display to remember those black lives who had been lost in racial violence in America. This gathering would also be the first time that most New Yorkers had actually seen a large group of African Americans. 
By the late 19th century, there were thriving black social organizations and meeting places, but they were separated from those spaces of white New Yorkers. Housing discrimination ensured that most black residents lived separately from upper-class whites in neighborhoods near working-class white immigrants, Greenwich Village, San Juan Hill, in today's Upper West Side, and here in the late 1910s, the burgeoning black neighborhood of Harlem. Despite the city's many black doctors, lawyers, and teachers, most white people in 1917 only saw black New Yorkers as housekeepers, as chefs, as laborers, as redcaps at Grand Central. And so another very specific aspect of this protest would be clothing. The women and children all in white and the men wearing all black. As scholar Alessandra Lorini notes, quote, the black clothes of men and the white dresses of women were the only choreographed details of a parade in which all social lines were obliterated. While the East St. Louis tragedy was the focus of the mournful July 28th gathering, the march was intended as a larger protest against civil rights abuses in the United States. Organizers like W.E.B. Du Bois were also direct in their motivations that the silent parade should be a message to President Wilson to speak out publicly against the lynchings. In addition to Du Bois, other prominent black leaders would help organize and fund the parade. Religious leaders would play a huge role here, such as the Reverend H.C. Bishop of St. Philip's Church, the West Indian minister Charles D. Martin, and the Reverend Frederick Asbury Cullen. Members of the black business world also joined the committee, including a prominent black woman who had moved to New York just a few years earlier. Madam C.J. Walker, whose line of hair care products had made her one of the richest black entrepreneurs in America. African-American newspapers like the New York Age ran advertisements for the march and volunteers canvassed black neighborhoods, handing out flyers. From the New York Age, July 26, 1917, quote, A cordial invitation is given you to join the great silent parade down Fifth Avenue. This means that every child, woman, and man, in fact, it means you. It means all who believe in human rights, all who are opposed to lynchings, brutality, and murder, and who believe in the enforcement of law and are opposed to lawlessness. The flyers that were handed out spelled out their objectives even more vividly. Quote, we march in memory of our butchered dead. We live in spite of death shadowing us and ours. We march because we want our children to live in a better land and enjoy fairer conditions that have fallen on our lot. We march because we deem it a crime to be silent in the face of barbaric acts. The parade wouldn't actually be silent. There would be drummers in emulation of a military march. But while the sounds of voices were kept silent, political intentions were made known via a series of banners interspersed among the marchers. To quote author Soyika Diggs Colbert, quote, The variety of signs, many of which protested physical violence, disrupted the well-designed and pristine presentation of respectability. 
Although the marchers displayed reservation, respect, and quiet in their comportment and dress, their sign system emphasized anger, outrage, patriotism, and revolution, unquote. Some of the banners included, Your hands are full of blood. India is abolishing caste. America is adopting it. We are maligned as lazy and murdered when we work. No alms but opportunity. We have fought for the liberty of white Americans in six wars. Our reward is East St. Louis. And were we first in France? Ask Pershing. Now that sign was in reference to the 369th Infantry Regiment, a.k.a. the Harlem Hellfighters. Just three days before the silent parade, the regiment would be called into federal service and sent into training. In a few months, the regiment would fight alongside the French on the front lines of the European conflict. Many of these men would have relatives and spouses who participated in the Great March, which took place on July 28, 1917. From a description of the parade from writer Lester A. Walton in the New York Age, quote, Callous and indifferent Manhattan Isle, the largest and most wonderful of all American cities, where only the unusual excites a ripple of public interest for the moment, was given a genuine thrill and made to sit up and take notice last Saturday afternoon when nearly 10,000 Negroes marched down Fifth Avenue and without uttering one word or making a single gesticulation, protested in respectful silence against the reign of mob law, segregation, Jim Crowism, and many other indignities to which their race is unnecessarily subjected to in the United States." Unquote. Somewhere between 10 and 15,000 black men, women, and children marched down Fifth Avenue that day. The march began at 57th Street and Fifth Avenue. So that's around the area where Tiffany's and Trump Tower sits today. This street was once lined with the mansions of New York's wealthy. And some of those mansions were still there, like the mansion of Cornelius Vanderbilt, which was on the northwest corner of 5th and 57th. The thousands of people who marched that day came from virtually every African-American church in New York City and the surrounding area. A drum corps and a troop of black Boy Scouts led the parade alongside organizers like W.E.B. Du Bois and James Weldon Johnson, with women and children following behind garbed in white dresses. The men, some in United States Army uniforms, then marched last behind a row of flag bearers holding representative flags from the United States, Great Britain, Liberia, and Haiti. From Mr. Walton's article, quote, The American Negro, West Indian Negro, and Haitian worked in unison as black men. Even advocates of various ideas of education overlooked their petty difference, and the Baptist, Methodist, Episcopalian, and Presbyterian ministers of the gospel and those of other denominations marched side by side, unquote. There were no chants or rallying cries, only the echoing beat of a drumline, the shuffling of feet, the low hum of a few automobiles, and the rattling of the 6th Avenue elevated train, just one block away. Down they marched past St. Patrick's Cathedral, 
past some unmemorable old townhouses which would be cleared away in less than 20 years to construct Rockefeller Center. They marched past the site of the former Colored Orphanage, which had burnt down by an angry mob in the Civil War draft riots of 1863. Down past the New York Public Library and past the Union League Club, where, quote, gray-haired aristocrats expressed sympathy for the marchers. They marched past B. Altman's and Lord and Taylor's department stores, They soon even walked past the Grand Waldorf Astoria Hotel at 34th Street. In fact, less than 14 years later, these old buildings would be torn down and replaced with New York's most famous skyscraper, the Empire State Building. Thousands of onlookers, white and black, had lined the parade route out of fascination, amusement, pride, anger, and joy. And some were shaken to the core. Those who were sympathetic to the cause of the marchers were themselves moved into silence. Even the normally disrespectful shut up for a moment. From the Brooklyn Standard Union, quote, even the apathetic crowds who sprinkled the lines of the march seemed to have caught the spirit of silence, and there was no cheering or hand clapping, unquote. For those who were truly interested in the cause, some marchers broke rank and helped explain the circumstances of the march to white New Yorkers. In Walden's account in the New York Age, for instance, he mentioned a woman going up to a police officer and told him to listen to the marchers because, quote, he must not forget Ireland had its troubles. Now, in Eric K. Washington's brilliant book, boss of the grips, about James Williams and the Red Caps of Grand Central, he reveals that they too played a role in this very special day. He writes, quote, Chief Williams might easily have given a number of the men leave to staff the crossing at 42nd Street and 5th Avenue, a block away, where they could contribute in the passing march. There, the Red Caps served as a, quote, impromptu speakers bureau for the marchers. In all, there were no chants or rallying cries. The collective throng remained silent during the length of the parade from 57th Street to 24th Street, culminating near Madison Square Park. Not one altercation with either police or with any bystander except for one, and that had occurred at the start of the parade. One controversial sign was thrown out of the march. According to the New York Times, the sign, quote, displayed a picture of a Negro woman kneeling before President Wilson and appealing to him to bring democracy to America before carrying it to Europe, unquote. This sign was deemed too controversial. Police intervened and the sign was removed. The marchers were not allowed to gather in Madison Square Park. The parade turned slightly west onto West 24th Street, where it disbanded. And it was only then that the marchers opened their lips in joy, in celebration, and most likely in relief. From Walton's article, quote, There was nothing anarchistic, nothing un-American. Quite the contrast to the conduct of some who have less cause to protest, but who do so by murdering the innocent, burning homes, and making the term Christianity a misnomer in America, unquote. 
and James Weldon Johnson himself reflected upon the silent parade in his 1937 biography. Quote, the streets of New York have witnessed many strange sights, but I judge never one stranger than this. Among the watchers were those with tears in their eyes. And then New York City and America forgot all about the silent parade. At least white America did. I didn't learn about this in school, and I suspect that most of you did not either. Fortunately, in the past few years, thanks in part to the centennial of the silent parade back in 2017, historians have brought the importance of the silent parade back into focus, and hopefully it's in some students' textbooks now. I mean, it was a Google Doodle on their homepage back in 2017. The highest honor of a historical moment, I guess, in the internet age. Perhaps I should rephrase my disbelief here. It's not that people forgot. It's that many people weren't even paying attention in the first place. The silent parade only made the front page of African-American newspapers like the New York Age. So in scrolling through several New York newspapers of this period, I was, I was kind of shocked, but not surprised, uh, to discover that the march was relegated to a few paragraphs uh, somewhere in like the middle of the newspaper. In the New York Times, the paper of record, uh, the march merited some coverage on page 12 after an article under the headline, Sotheby's offers many rare books. Just a few days after the silent parade, a 20-member delegation of NAACP members, including Madam C.J. Walker, took a train down to Washington, D.C. to meet with President Wilson to discuss crafting a federal response to lynching and anti-black violence in America. Yet Wilson refused to meet with the delegation. They handed their petition to his personal secretary, which read, quote, We come asking that the president use his great powers to have granted to us some redress of the grievances set forth in our petition. And we come further praying that the president may find it in his heart to speak some public word that will give hope and courage to our people, thus using his great personal and moral influence in our behalf, unquote. Now, later on, Wilson would meet with another delegation from the NAACP, but little was done by him on the anti-lynching front. The New York organization would continue to influence other politicians, however, with much greater success, and they wouldn't lose their flair for the dramatic. Throughout the 1920s, a banner hung from their Fifth Avenue offices stating, a man was lynched yesterday. In 1922, an anti-lynching bill passed the House of Representatives, but was sunk in the Senate. So as of press time today, early June, the year 2020, lynching has still not been considered a federal hate crime, although a bill called the Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act is slowly making its way, slowly making its way through Congress. Lest you think that our current news cycle 
is unusually intense for human history. Well, less than a year after the silent parade, the world was gripped not only by war, but disease. In October of 1918 alone, 195,000 Americans died of the Spanish flu, which at that point was in its second deadlier wave. The next month, an armistice was signed in Europe, effectively ending the fighting of World War I. And then two months later from that, in January of 1919, former President Theodore Roosevelt died in his home in Sagamore Hill. And it was in that year, 1919, that America would see some of its most intense and vile racist atrocities in its history in a series of events which would become known as the Red Summer, a term coined by James Weldon Johnson. Literally dozens of race riots, lynchings, and attacks upon black communities, stretching from sea to shining sea, or at least from Connecticut to Arizona. Even here in New York, on July 20th, 1919, almost two years to the day from the silent parade, its pleas of compassion, and its message of peace ignored. But it had not been forgotten, of course, by black Americans. In 1922, a contingent of 1,500 African Americans marched in Washington, D.C. in a similar silent parade in connection to an anti-lynching bill that was in Congress, that bill that regretfully failed. The silent parade connects the civil rights movement and our current moment of protest to the 19th century struggles for human rights. Because of these men and women of the NAACP, future generations would have the tools of protest to build from. The architects of the silent parade would become leading voices in the Harlem Renaissance. Madam C.J. Walker died in 1919, but her daughter Alelia would become a major patron of Harlem's great writers and thinkers. When Alelia died, her eulogy was written by her good friend, County Cullen, the son of Reverend Frederick Asbury Cullen, one of the organizers of the silent parade. James Weldon Johnson would become one of the great poets of the Harlem Renaissance, and a song written by he and his brother, lift every voice and sing, would become the anthem of the NAACP. James Weldon Johnson died in 1938 at age 67. Now, I tried to find a piece of recorded music that expressed the sentiment of this moment, of those who marched in the silent parade. But most recorded music of this period was created as pure escapism, People rarely got paid to record protest music back in the day. But there is one singer who first debuted in the early 1920s who held that sorrow and rage in her voice, whether she was singing about heartbreak or loneliness. So here's a little bit of Bessie Smith singing Backwater Blues. And thank you very much for listening. In the skies turn dark as night. When it rained five days in the skies turn dark as night. Then trouble taking place in the love.
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.